For almost a full year, Detective Len Carver and his team had struggled to figure out the identity of this prolific bank robber who was terrorizing banks around Seattle. It's like, God, there's another robbery up in wherever, you know? Gee, it's that guy. There, there was just, there was no leap behind. There were no tips. We just, we just didn't have anything to go on. Didn't have a vehicle description. We had a couple of images that we could say, without a doubt, we were dealing with a, a, a large white male. A large white male. That was basically the profile. Until February of 2014, when Tony started to get careless. After robbing the U.S. bank inside of Fred Meyer, he was sure he'd gotten away again. He'd kept his head down, didn't see anyone following him. But Tony had been sloppy. He'd forgotten the rules. The grocery store was crawling with customers. And this time, Tony was followed. In fact, two people saw the robber exiting and followed him long enough to see the man get into a blue van. And this van had some unique, identifiable features. A Seattle Seahawks sticker on the back window. And a broken side mirror. This was, finally, a gift to Detective Carver, straight off his wish list. A vehicle description. This is Hooked, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. And I'm Josh Dean. your own worst enemy when you're drug addicted and you're chosen these risky things because bank robbery is a dangerous business. Some people don't survive. Part 7. Mousetrap. Once the two eyewitnesses gave their statements to law enforcement, the task force jumped into action. They put out a bulletin so that local police would know to keep an eye out for a blue van with a Seahawk sticker and a broken side mirror. Meanwhile, Detectives Steve Hoover and Mike Mellis from the task force hit the pavement. Here's Hoover. One of the main things you do when a robbery occurs is you go out and canvas several blocks around the area looking for video. When Mike and I started working these, um, several of the robberies, we would, even if it wasn't in our jurisdiction, he and I would head out and start walking around looking for video. Detective Mellis obtained video from Fred Meyer in a smoke shop called Zach's. It showed the same van coming into the parking lot, leaving, and coming back again. Mellis then took the images to a salesperson at a local Honda dealership, who narrowed down the vehicle even more. Police were now looking for a 2005 to 2007 Honda Odyssey EX in Ocean Mist. If we're going to catch a bad guy behind the robbery, it's not us. It's not the investigators, because we're <laughs> by the time we get there, it's long over with, right? So you're relying on the patrol guys. Carver didn't have to wait long. A day later, an Everett Beat cop spotted the van. A, a patrol officer on random and unpredictable patrol sees the minivan and the neuron fires. Wait a minute. That's got an interesting mirror and the Seahawks sticker. They follow the van to a beige duplex with bay windows and a double garage on the east side of town. Now we know where the residence is. We have a car. We know that that van was used in a bank robbery, but we don't know who was driving it and robbed the bank. And so here we are, stuck with watching a car and see who's going to drive it. And then are they going to pull a caper? Are they going to do a robbery? The police work was pretty obvious now. Sit on the duplex. 
I think it was one of the FBI agents, saw him wearing the reddish-orange sweatshirt that had been seen in one of the robberies. And the sweatshirt was fairly distinctive because it was a reddish-orange and it had white ties from the hood hanging down in front of it. Mike also had gone to the um, one of the casinos up, up in Snohomish County, and that showed that he was a customer there and got video that had that same sweatshirt. But it's only a day or two, I think, that we were surveilling, actually watching the van. And then it, it comes down and starts circling that key bank there in the university district. Which brings us back to the day you heard about in episode one, when Tony set out for his 30th robbery, unaware that the FBI was watching his every move. At 10 in the morning on February 11th, agents from Carver's task force saw a white male emerge from the apartment. He got into that blue van and headed south towards Seattle, leading cops right back to U Village. He kept coming back to that bank that had been robbed on a prior occasion. You know that key bank, the one that's since been demolished. Oh my goodness. Those little bastards tore it down. But he didn't stop at the bank. He just drove around, meandering and circling. And circling and casing and parking in the area. We were trying to stay up with the car and keep eyes on him. And it got kind of weird, right? We're all driving around in circles to the point we're gonna bump into each other. And it's like, everybody just stop. This is the bank. My SUV had lots of antennas and it was kind of a standout. It wasn't something that we use for surveillance. You know, it was more of a response kind of SUV. So I just stayed kind of out of sight and out of the way, but I'd parked many blocks away. And I can't tell you how many times I saw him drive by. I'm like, oh my gosh. And then, you know, and then the surveillance car, and then he'd right back southbound again, and then back northbound again, and then southbound again. I'm like, I think we can just set up and he'll come to us. After several hours of watching Tony zigzag all over town, the cop stood patiently by as he came back to U Village, pulled into the Burgermaster parking lot, and passed out in the driver's seat. Well, he's gonna take a nap. I'm like, okay, everybody, it's time for a bathroom break. Go get, go get your McDonald's, <laughs> you know, everybody gets a break. The shot some heroin, he's gotta take a nap. And then he wakes up and goes right to the bank. Right? Pretty much. Finally, at 4.30 p.m., Cops hiding in various locations watch their subject walk up to the key bank with an umbrella over his head. About 10 feet from the entrance, he pulled a covering over his face and stood in front of the bank doors for about five seconds. Then he entered. We let him go in and do the robbery. Large bills only, 20s, 50s, and 100s. And then he came bounding out and across the parking lot. The close-in surveillance team came out from undercover and challenged him and he complied immediately. This finally was what Carver and Hoover and Mellis and everyone else on the task force had been waiting a year for. None of them knew then exactly how many of the robberies the man lying on the ground was responsible for, but they felt reasonably certain this was the guy behind, well, at least a bunch of them. My next thing is now what, now what? What It's thinking about, well, we're gonna get him in custody. Is he gonna talk? About an hour later, Len walked into the interrogation room where Tony was sitting. You got some water? Yes, sir. Would you like a Coke? Oh, no, thank you. Okay. So you're uh, Mr. Hathaway? That is correct. Okay. Uh, Anthony, my name is Len Carver. It's my colleague, Mike Malice. Hi. Nice to meet you, Anthony. She was under better circumstances. 
No, but it's under the circumstances that it's under, and um, we we need to talk to you uh, about everything. And uh, can I just want to get some background information from you before we start, if you don't mind? Can I get your uh, date of birth? This interrogation would go on for almost six hours. A common police tactic is to keep the suspect talking as long as you can, preferably without a lawyer hanging around to interfere. How much time am I looking at? And why would we not have an attorney to help negotiate that? Yeah, we all have the right to an attorney. Sure we do. Of course we do. It's just... just you don't uh, have an attorney... Do that? You, no, you don't, don't have an attorney to come down here, do you? Do you know of an attorney who will come down here for you? Probably not, because I don't have any money. If you talk to an attorney, they're going to say, uh, don't talk. You're still a man, though. You still make your own decisions. They say that automatically. Tonight's the night, Tony. Carver and Mellis steered Tony away from calling a lawyer multiple times that night because they wanted to see how many of the robberies he'd cop to so they could wrap up as many of their cases as possible. They wanted a confession, a blanket confession. To make it easy for Tony, the detectives had laid out piles of photographs, mostly grainy video stills from surveillance cameras, and they tried over and over to get Tony to admit he was the blurry figure in the images. Tony, uh, it should be clear to you that Detective Mellis and I know that today was not your first bank robbery. I think you did 31 robberies. Am I too far off base? That's a lot of robberies. We do need for you to accept responsibility and step up to the plate today. And Tony, don't leave anything unanswered. It, it will haunt you later. At certain points, Len played chummy and patient. He tried to downplay the seriousness of Tony's crimes. I will wait for as long as it takes. Tony, I know what we're asking you to do isn't easy, brother. Yeah, easy. But deep down, I'm looking at you. I know I'm fucked. <laughs> I think... I mean, I already know that. You, you think you're fucked harder than what you are actually fucked. And I'm giving you a great opportunity tonight to minimize the fucking. But other times, he tried a harder tack. I have asked you tonight to step up to the plate and do the right thing. Do you think we're playing a game, dude? No, I it is, it is, it is one, two, three, four, five, six, nine, thirty-nine, four hundred things that point to you. I told you earlier, we did not stumble on you at Key Bank in the University District today because I happened to be driving by with a donut in my hand. We have been looking at you. To Carver, this was all a game detectives play. You use those techniques to encourage them to be truthful. So rather than saying this is a very serious crime and you're in deep trouble, Mr. Blah, 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 it's like, hey, nobody got hurt. I mean, we know it's a very serious crime for which he's going to be held responsible and punished, and it's, it's serious. It's a crime of violence. At a few points in the night, Carver and Mellis painted a picture of an army of cops staged outside Tony's mother's house, just waiting for a signal to go in and tear open walls. This was the same duplex where his sister also lived, with her two young sons. The last thing Tony wanted was to involve his mom and his nephews in some kind of raid. I need for you real quick uh, for me to draw a layout of the interior of the duplex. They have search warrants for both units. So what does unit A look like? I not to like kick my door in or something because my mom will have a heart attack. I made a phone call, but we're trying to prevent this whole busting shit up and treating people badly. It was a bargaining tactic. 
The detectives were essentially telling Tony, hey, if you cooperate, we'll search your family's duplex without destroying it. They clearly had been watching. They seemed to know the place very well. We took some pictures of the people hanging out in the house. Oh, this is going to turn into a fucking mess. They showed him picture after picture, still trying to get Tony to identify himself. So you got to go through now and say which ones are you well, and which ones are not you. You got to go through the whole here's list. The, here's the issue. I still think that this one is your first robbery. They were starting to wear him down. I know I'm just fucking myself by talking to you guys. I don't even care. I don't think you are. Tony, you're I mean, not. I would say it if I didn't believe it. I don't think you are. The you truth know. is going to be discovered anyway. It's best just coming from you. Heartfelt. Honest. Finally, Tony broke. Mellis pointed at a hooded figure in one of the pictures. Is this you? Is it not you? Okay. Yeah, that's me. But Tony didn't stop there. The floodgates were open. He confessed to all of them. So this picture you're looking at here is a robbery at the Whidbey Island Bank yeah. on February 19th. Actually, I robbed that bank uh, twice for sure. April 26th. That's you? Yep. All right, Tony. We're looking at number nine in the series. Oh, Jesus, that's me. July 12th, 2013. Yeah, I robbed that one twice also. I want you to get a good look at this one. Yeah, that's... Is that the ATM? Camera? Yeah, it's me. Yeah, that'd be right then. That's me for sure. Yep. That's me. Three times, I think. That's you? Yep. Oh, that's what that black, that's the stripe. Yeah, that's me. That's, that's me. Oh. Yeah. 13? Number 13. Number 14. Yep. Is that you with the umbrella? Yeah. Actually have a brief video on this one? Oh, yeah, that's me because I'm checking. There's a little picture right there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's me. That was a good one. That's you, he said? Yeah. I confessed to protect my family because I didn't want them to raid the house. (laughs) Like, I didn't want them to go in, kick the doors in with guns, blazing which we did anyway right (laughs) actually we were doing it that was occurring while he's sitting in our interview room carver's task force already had the warrants and the house was being raided before tony even finished talking of course locked in that windowless room tony couldn't have known that yeah i'm waiting on the phone call to say we're in the house and we've got some Good damning evidence. We got clothing items. I got that mask. I've got these things that directly link him to the bank robberies. Up north, in Everett, Hoover and a bunch of FBI agents were digging through every corner of the duplex, looking for evidence to link Tony with the other robberies. I found some latex gloves that, that match some of the, you know, gloves you can see in the robberies. I found a, a T-shirt, cut-up T-shirt with eye holes in it. Um, I think I found a camo jacket that might have matched one of the robberies. found um, evidence of um, heroin use, the syringes, and then little pieces of tin foil to cook the heroin, to liquefy it. And there were several of those in his bedroom. And then in the other townhouse, there was a, a backpack that matched uh, the Bellevue robbery. Hoover questioned the rest of Tony's family, too, who all claimed to know nothing about the robberies. He especially remembers Candy. And his mother was, she was ailing. She was not very healthy to start with. We ended up uh, having an aid unit come out for her just because 
I don't know if she was having, you know, a panic attack or something, but, you know, you have all these cops in the middle of your living room saying your son's been arrested, and so obviously she was not doing well. I mean, I just remember for a long time I was thinking that this is, I'm done, like my life is over. Like I robbed so many banks, there's no way I'm ever going to get out of prison. That was really weighing on me, I remember that. After Tony confessed, some of the officers walked him out of the station and down the block in the rain. He was taken to King County Jail inside a looming gray high-rise in downtown Seattle. Initially, they put Tony in a large cell with about 20 other guys, all sharing a single room on bunks with one toilet, one urinal, and a sink. The one toilet is a big problem when a prisoner is dope sick, and Tony got so sick from heroin withdrawal, they had to move him into solitary confinement. It was there, alone in a cell, that he detoxed, with no medication to help with the dope sickness. They lock you in a cell and throw away the key. I mean, they took all my clothes away from me and just just left me there. This was, Tony says, the single most physically miserable time of his life. I literally lost my mind because I was so sick and I was hallucinating and throwing up and had diarrhea and I couldn't sleep. It takes like three or four days to get through the worst part of the dope sickness. And during that time, you, you do not sleep for even five minutes. Or you're awake the entire time. So you start suffering from sleep deprivation, okay? You're extremely dehydrated. I mean, there's the physical pain of it, but the emotional and the psychological part of it is so overwhelming seeing all kinds of crazy shit that wasn't there and people there that aren't there. The cell had tiny slot windows and Tony could see activity 11 floors down on the ground. And he began to think there were people coming to bring him dope, to deliver him from this hell. You, honest to God, just want to, you just want to die. I, I would have killed myself if I could have found a way. After suffering in solitary for a few days, Tony finally started to come back to life. The sickness passed. Then reality set in. It was terrible in a very different way. You're, you're locked in that concrete block 24-7 with 20 guys and it is fucking crazy let me tell you (laughs) fights all the time and just it's just absolute chaos there's no peace and quiet it's loud as hell all day long his ex-girlfriend Val went to visit him he was dope sick in a room full of all these inmates and I remember he was beat up from somebody in, in the jail with him I think it was just like pecking order. Like, he was new, and it was just not to worry about it. (laughs) It was always, don't worry about it, I'm fine. That was hard to to see, too, seeing Tony with his face all banged up. I mean, he was crying, saying he loved me, and he was sorry that he did these things to me. I mean, he was the old Tony, and it was heartbreaking to see him in there because it's the old Tony shouldn't have been in there. It's the drugs that put him there. And it was just heartbreaking to know that he had just thrown his life away for this this high that he was desperately needing. Jails are only meant to hold inmates for a short period. You're not supposed to stay there long term. That's what prison is for. And it turns out the discomfort of jail can actually work to discourage inmates from going to trial. It just sucks in there a lot. The sooner you take a deal, the sooner you get yourself into an actual prison. And by comparison, prison can be more tolerable. You get some privacy, a few amenities, and real visits. 
But here's the thing. Tony didn't want a deal. Well, because for me, the deal they were offering me was 14 years. That was the original offer. 14 years away from his kids. That's the best he was going to get. One of Tony's public defenders, Zach Franz, told me later that because he'd committed robberies in two counties, there was a chance his sentence could be doubled. 28 years. So Tony decided to fight, which meant he had to suck it up and live in that hellish one-room pod with 20 other guys, as long as it took to sort his case out. What kept Tony sane was that case. It became his obsession. I think I went to court like 20 times. Once a month, we go to court, you know, and they're trying to get me to consider maybe looking at this option, and I just, every time I refuse. Tony kept refusing plea deals. He wasn't being stupid, and he wasn't just being stubborn either. As deliberations continued, a reason for Tony to be optimistic emerged. And it goes back to that six-hour interrogation and the fact that he confessed without having a lawyer. Here's his public defender, Zach. The kind of worst-case scenario is a full confession, right? Prosecutor's going to come in, put a tape recorder on the stand, push play, right? And then the confession's going to play. And, you know, that's the, the backbone of their case. It's going to be a fairly easy, easy conviction. And so figuring out a way to attack that was perhaps the only way um, to move the case forward. So the defense had to figure out a way to make sure the confession would not be admissible in court. This interrogation um, was unique in my experience in in terms of just how long it it took. So he managed to hold out for something like two hours. I think the total interrogation was around six hours. And and for two hours, um, he, he talked about wanting an attorney. Look at me. Your mother would tell you to tell the truth. I think my mother would tell me to get an attorney and have them help negotiate a deal for me. Well, I knew that if we had an attorney in the room, it would be over, right? Because he was right the first time. An attorney would tell me not to talk to you. In fact, Tony mentioned an attorney something like a dozen times. Zach, the public defender, thought this might be enough to get his entire confession thrown out especially if you coupled it with the fact that, in Zach's opinion, the detectives had used coercion. And I think (laughs) this idea that you could then threaten someone's family to kind of push them over the edge, um, I think also went way over the line. I mean, they're threatening his mom, they're threatening his nephew. um, They say they've got the SWAT team. The state pushed back because they knew the confession was their best card, by far. Here's the prosecutor, Jason Simmons. It was clear from my perspective, and also from defense's perspective from the very beginning, that the main issue and the issue that had to be litigated was whether or not his confession was going to come in, whether it was admissible. And it was kind of a toss-up, because when it comes to the law around requesting an attorney, Tony's particular situation was a bit murky. Here's Jason Simmons again. So we all know, you know, your Miranda warnings, right? But you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to a lawyer. The law says that for you to invoke those rights, you have to do it unequivocally. So you can't just sit there and say, think to yourself, I want a lawyer, or think to yourself, I don't want to talk. You have to say it or make it be known. You need to say something to the extent of, I want a lawyer. Give me my lawyer. You can't just sit there and say, you know, maybe I should have a lawyer. That's an equivocation. Whether you agree with that or not, kind of as a human being or a member of our 
community, I think is a different question. I'm just saying what the kind of the law says, like prior cases. So what Mr. Hathaway did was repeatedly on a number of occasions asked if he should get a lawyer, asked questions about a lawyer, you know, when he could have a lawyer. I think my mother would tell me to get a lawyer. I feel like I'm going to wake up tomorrow and talk to my lawyer. Why the fuck did you sit there? Is he your father? Is your attorney your father? Don't. No, but he's the only person that's going to be there. He's that's right. Your attorney's going to be some person who doesn't know you. Well, I know an attorney would tell me that I shouldn't even be talking to you. Why would you not do this with an attorney? If I had an attorney here, he would tell me to shut I'm struggling to see why I can't be cooperative with an attorney representing me. So he said a number of things suggesting that he understood that, you know, maybe it was a good idea for him to get a lawyer. But he never kind of explicitly said, I want a lawyer. So that just created a legal question of whether or not he actually invoked his right to counsel. Actually, to me, the thing that was most problematic about the lawyer component was that there was a time he asked, if I was to get a lawyer, when could I see my lawyer? And the police just, their answer was simply wrong. So you guys think if I uh, asked for an attorney, we couldn't sit here and have the same conversation? There's no physical way that we could get an attorney down here and continue this conversation tonight. It's just, uh, I'm not going to be able to, do you have an attorney? No. Okay, well. Thing is, according to prosecutor Jason Simmons, there is always a public defender on call, 24 hours a day. This then is at least problematic, if not outright improper. As for coercion, Simmons wasn't buying it. The police did not overwhelm his, like, free will and ability to kind of interact freely with them, in my opinion. I mean, he's, he's too clever for that. I mean, they weren't rude. They weren't berating. They didn't, you know, not let him go to the bathroom. They gave him food. They gave him water if he wanted it. So I think they're, they're generally kind of friendly to him. He was, you know, I think as actively kind of trying to, to play, frankly, the police as they were trying to play him. Len Carver agrees. Oh, yeah, Tony was bright. He's articulate. He knows what's going on. I think Tony also knew he could have shut everything down. Even Tony admitted to me that he was running his own mental calculations in that moment. I mean, it did seem like a little game of going back and forth, and I'm trying to think ahead about, like, where where is this going to go? If I'm going to confess, then is there anything I can do to protect myself later down the road as this thing progresses. I do remember thinking, if I straight up say, I'm not talking to you guys, I want an attorney, then it's over. This time, Tony's gamble paid off. The judge sided with Tony's defense team and tossed the confession. The judge also ruled it involuntary, reasoning that the detectives wielded their influence in exchange for a statement. Jason Simmons, the prosecutor, disagreed with the involuntary part because he thought Tony was well aware of what was going on. Hathaway is a smart guy, and I think that he was clever in his bank robberies, and I think he was clever in how he dealt with the police during the course of his interview. Um, Because throughout it, what he was doing is he he was already negotiating. I think he was really concerned about his son and his son's involvement. So he was attempting to negotiate all the while, like, not really giving information. Getting the confession tossed was a huge break for Tony. But, of course, he wasn't getting off scot-free. There was maybe three or four pretty confident we could probably prove— Um, And then there was a group of, you know, four or five of them 
which would be questionable, right? Um, and then the vast majority of them fell into like, no, we can't prove these without his confession. Even after the confession was tossed, Tony fought on. He was holding out for the absolute minimum sentence he could get. On the other side, Jason Simmons was pushing for Tony to do real time. His defendant did admit to committing 30 robberies, even if he could only truly prove a handful of them. So Tony sat in King County Jail for six more months as the wheels of justice slowly ground on. This whole time, life on the outside went on without him. Here's his ex-girlfriend, Val, who never visited him again after that first time. One letter was exchanged at the beginning between the both of us, and that was that was it. I had gotten married and was starting a life, and so it was just kind of one of those things where it was just kind of time to just let it go and leave it alone. Tony wasn't getting out of this mess anytime soon. Eventually, he and Val fell out of touch. I feel guilt, and I know I shouldn't, but I feel like part of it is my fault that he went down this road. If I, you know, would have kept him under the roof, if we would have, you know, figured it out and he would have gone to treatment then instead of me just being like, nope, done, get out, that none of this would have happened, that I could have saved the day. This what-if feeling is common among loved ones of people suffering from addiction. And so part of that guilt still kind of taps at me that, you know, maybe this wouldn't have happened if I would have just helped a little bit more instead of denied or hid that he was turning into this. Meanwhile, Tony's mom's health kept deteriorating, and his kids were growing up, turning into adults. We've heard all about Connor and that relationship, but Tony's daughter Madison was more straight-laced. She was never really interested in drugs or partying, so the idea of visiting her dad in jail was a lot to handle. It did take me a few months to get the courage to go visit my dad. I, I was just, you know, a little, I was disappointed and, and at first and angry and I didn't know what I would say or what he would say or if it would be weird. Visiting him at the jail wasn't ideal because there was glass between us so we just were able to talk through the phone. And so that was hard because I just wanted to give my dad a hug but I couldn't. I couldn't hug him yet at that point when he was still in that jail. And then I started visiting him really, real often. He had visits late in the evening. So after my dance practice, I'd get some homework done and then go drive to Seattle and go visit him. You, you didn't feel like he had, he had let you down? I mean, I, I did for a, for a short time. And then it, you know, when I realized, yeah, this is what happened and I can choose to have that big grudge and or I can just choose to kind of forgive him and just love him and help him through this. Maybe one reason Madison could process it like this was that she had a support system outside her family. Just days before her dad was arrested, when she was 16, Madison joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I found it through some friends in my sophomore year of high school. Um, that was one of the best decisions that I've made, and it really helped me, especially dealing with my, my family struggles and my dad's addiction. It really helped me to have that foundation in the church in my life. Her dad missed her baptism. Still, Madison had made considerable headway plotting a different, more wholesome life for herself. 
Tony didn't have to worry about her, but he was definitely worried about Connor. Connor was out of prison and trying to get his life back on track, but he was still struggling with drug abuse. Seeing his father in jail didn't help. This was uh, uh, some serious uh, time that I was facing, so I think for him, you know, obviously he turned to what he's always turned to when, when he's depressed or stressed out, and, and, and that's drugs. I mean, I was always so excited to see him, you know. But when he shows up, and he just looks like, I mean, just looks like death, you know. I, I just know he's doing he's doing terrible. When he would come to visit, I would do everything I could to try to encourage him to go, man, go get some help. You got to go to treatment. You got to get clean, buddy. You know, here I am stuck on the other side of the glass, and I can't do a fucking thing about it. By late 2015, Tony had been in jail for a year and a half and was facing the idea of spending another Christmas in jail alone. He wanted to get out to help Connor and was dying to hug Madison before she left on a year-long mission trip. He was missing out on so much. Not just as a dad, either. He'd recently become a grandfather. Connor had gotten back together with his longtime girlfriend after being released from jail. They had a baby, a little boy. Guess what they named him? Anthony. I mean, shoot, I remember they brought him up to visit me when, oh man, he must have only been just a few weeks old. Just a tiny little thing, yeah. But Tony couldn't hold him or kiss him or smell his little head. Connor had to hold the baby up to the dirty plexiglass window that separated them. I'm tired of sitting in this jail. I'm tired of visiting my family through a glass window over a phone. Like, I want to get to prison and be able to sit in an actual room with them and have contact visits where you can give them a hug and, you know. And, and it, it really came down to that. So when the prosecution came with its latest offer, Tony was more receptive. He was ready to make a deal and move on. Eventually, the two sides settled on eight years and ten months. Tony was convicted of four counts of robbery plus one count of theft. So I got to serve basically six years. I've already been here for two, so that means I got to do four, and then I could also get out early for work release. This is not that bad of a deal. It certainly could have been much worse for Tony, but he had a few things going for him. For one, he was white, and he had no serious criminal history, just some traffic violations. And then you had the lucky alchemy of Tony's stubbornness mixed with the cops screwing up the interrogation. If Tony's confession hadn't been challenged and then tossed, he almost certainly would have received a much longer sentence. But without it, the prosecution just didn't have a strong enough case. I asked the prosecutor, Jason Simmons, about this. I mean, looking back on it, are you like, did, did he get the right sentence and, you know, was justice served? I don't know. I, I never know the answer to that question. I mean, I'm not the kind of arbiter of justice. Like, I'm not pretending there's some magical number that somebody deserves for whatever their crime is. But he robbed a lot of banks, and he, to me, most importantly, like, scared the living shit out of a whole lot of people, and some people whom are still traumatized to this day for what he did to them. 
um, which to me, I care a lot more about than, you know, the banks losing two grand, right? Fair or not, it was decided. And finally, after two years in a room with a rotating cast of 20 dudes, Tony was put on a prison bus that took him to a facility for inmate processing. Then he was sent to Monroe Correctional Complex, 30 miles east of Seattle, to serve out his term. So county jail absolutely sucks. There's nothing, no, I can't say one good thing about it. But prison, I mean, once you get to prison and get settled in, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not that hard. I mean, it sucks, of course, because you lost your freedom and you're away from your family. But if you got phone calls and a music player and, uh, and then you get a job, that's the other key thing. Once you get a good job where you're staying busy every day, it, uh, you know, it's not that bad. How much were you making? Like your jobs in prison, they pay you like like dollar an hour or something, right? Don't they? <laughs> oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> no, not a dollar. Forty two cents. <laughs> oh my god! At Boeing, Tony's been making more than a hundred grand a year. You're making about three bucks a day, and then you know you got to use that money to buy your hygiene items, right? Soap, razors for shaving you know, whatever else you need. And then also things like coffee and snacks and stuff like that. Luckily for me, I had support from my family, you know, to put extra money on my books so I could buy the things that I needed. But if you didn't have any help from the outside and you were only depending on your tiny little paychecks you're earning while you're working there, it's a, yeah, it's be a huge struggle. Monroe contains five different facilities with varying amounts of security. Tony started in the medium security facility, but within a few years, he earned his way to what they call the camp, the minimum security sector. Along the way, he got a nicer cell and a TV. But most importantly, he could have actual visits from family members who could sit next to him and hug him. Tony's daughter Madison came, and so did Candy, his mom. They brought a wheelchair so that she wouldn't have to walk too far from the parking lot to get to the actual visiting center there. She was on oxygen and just looking so tiny and frail and so old all of a sudden. It was it was just sad, but we had a great visit. I think the main thing she just wanted to know is that I was going to be okay, you know, when this is all over, you know, and I just said, Mom, I'm going to be fine. A few months later, Tony got word that his mom was in the hospital and likely wouldn't make it much longer. They did give me a... Um, a special phone call the same uh, the same day that she passed away. I was lucky enough that the um, that my unit sergeant set up a special time that when everybody was locked down to let me come out and uh, and make that call. So that was that was nice. Instead of Tony, it was his ex girlfriend Val who was by his mom's side. I, I adored Candy. And like I said, I planned on spending the rest of my life with this man. So I definitely took his family in as my own. I kept a relationship with her even after Tony and I split up until I was next to her bedside table when she died. She, she was amazing. <sighs> Sorry. Um, I always joke around, she's the only mother-in-law I ever got along with. 
Tony knows that his mom was heartbroken to have seen him suffer with addiction. And it was really sad, just profoundly shitty, to be stuck in prison and have to miss his own mom's funeral. But at the end of Candy's life, there was one small thing for Tony to feel good about. I mean, even though I was in prison, when she passed, at least she knew I was finally got clean, you know? Um, and I, I wish I could have found a way to do it uh, sooner and on, on a much different path. But yeah, she I know it just broke her heart. Next week on Hooked, Tony waits anxiously for his release from prison as his son Connor falls deeper into old habits. I was not going to be able to quit at that point. And he begins to make some of the worst decisions of his life. I was selling heroin. I was selling guns. Basically, if I thought I could make money and it was illegal, I was doing it. <laughs> Hooked is an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. The executive producers are Mark McAdam and me, Josh Dean. Our producer is Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Our story editor is Michelle Lanz. And Sierra Franco is the associate producer. Fact-checking on this episode by Will Peichel. Additional reporting and research by Callie Hitchcock. Field producing on this episode by Bethany Denton and Kyle Norris. Original music by Mark McAdam and Doug Slaywin. Additional sound design for this episode by Rod Sherwood. Editorial support from Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. The executive producers at Campside Media are Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and me, Josh Dean. If you're enjoying Hooked, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really does help other people find the show, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.